Good evening and welcome. It's wonderful to have you back in person again and for the first time in a long time to see all your faces. I'm Terry Price, co-director of the Gary L. McDowell Institute. The Institute is dedicated to its namesake's values and principles. Free inquiry, thoughtful deliberation, and rigorous discussion. Last semester's programming focused on the historical roots of some of these ideas. Tonight's lecture considers and addresses their contemporary challenges. Over the entire semester, a group of student fellows has met for rigorous discussion of questions about knowledge, truth, and the role of disagreement and dissent. These students don't get any academic credit for their efforts, just the benefits of open and honest debate with their classmates. I'd like to ask the student fellows to please stand and be recognized. I also want to recognize the Pauli Family Foundation for making this programming possible and to thank the Institute for Humane Studies for providing funding for tonight's lecture. I'm now going to turn things over to Dan Palazzolo, who will introduce our speaker. Dan is Interim Dean of the School of Arts and Sciences, Professor of Political Science, and hardly least of all, my co-director at the McDowell Institute. Dan. Well, thank you, Terry, and welcome, everyone. It's uh, really great to see everyone tonight. Tonight's speaker is Jonathan Rauch, one of the country's most versatile and original writers on government, public policy, and gay marriage, among other subjects. A senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington and contributing writer of The Atlantic, he is the author of eight books and many articles and has received the magazine industry's two leading prizes, the National Magazine Award, the industry's equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize, and the National Headliner Award. Jonathan's most recent book, The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, is particularly well suited to the mission of the McDowell Institute. In addition to this evening's address, Jonathan led this afternoon's seminar with the student fellows that Terry recognized earlier. And I'm happy to report that it was a vibrant exchange of ideas about topics that are central to our democracy, to our political culture, and to the pursuit of truth. Please join me in welcoming tonight's speaker, Jonathan Rausch. Thank you all. What a privilege to be with you on your beautiful campus on this lovely day. Thank you so much to Dan and Terry and Kevin uh, and the whole McDowell Institute for having me here today. Uh, and above all, thanks to all of you for taking a little bit of time today. I want to spend the next 45 minutes or so talking about the greatest human social technology of all time, the constitution of knowledge, a literally transformative social technology that changed us from a group of tribes and sects who settled disagreements, often by killing each other, splitting into warring units, into a species that now creates objective knowledge on a global scale at unprecedented speed and literally creates more knowledge on any given morning than was created in the first probably 200,000 years cumulatively in human existence. But I want to do that by specifically grounding you. First, briefly, what is the constitution of knowledge and how do we defend it? And second, in what ways is it under attack, under threat? 
And then finally, what do we do about it? It's a lot of ground to move through quickly, so bear with me. Maybe a place to begin is to talk about a new phrase that's come along in just the past four or five years. I never heard it before. Now it's pretty common. Epistemic crisis, epistemological crisis, as Barack Obama put it in 2020, if we do not have the capacity to distinguish what's true from what's false, then by definition, the marketplace of ideas doesn't work. Remember that phrase, marketplace of ideas. We'll be back there momentarily. And by definition, our democracy doesn't work. We are entering an epistemological crisis. What in the world does that mean? Um, well, here's a good short definition. Epistemic crisis is the breakdown of a society's epistemic constitution, which is to say its social system for setting, settling differences of belief and building a shared public reality. Now, this is not to say, as some people sometimes do, that we should have shared facts. No large society has ever had shared facts, and if we could, we wouldn't want to because it's disagreements about truth and fact that drive the process of building knowledge. But what we do need to have is a certain amount of consensus on how we identify facts, how we structure the public conversation on critical public facts so that over time we can build consensus instead of dissensus. When that process breaks down, we get symptoms like polarization, chilling, that is people who are afraid or unwilling to voice their true beliefs, False consensus, this is when people don't know what other people are actually thinking. Uh, forking realities, when different groups in society have realities and not only split off, but often can't really dialogue with each other. Ungovernability, conflict, even war. Not infrequently in human history. Think about the 150 years war between Protestants and Catholics killed approximately 30% of the population of today's Germany. Where are we today? <clears throat> well, here's one of many indicators. More than 60% of Americans say that they are afraid of saying things that they believe because others will find them offensive. The poll here is typical of many others. They all come out in the range of about 60 to 67%. As we'll see in a few minutes, this is a very real and rather new phenomenon. Forked realities. Here's an example of that. The majority of Republicans believe that Democrats in Congress are primarily responsible for the January 6th riot. The rest of the country lives in a world where Donald Trump is primarily responsible for the January 6th riots. And it is very difficult for these groups to communicate and resolve this disagreement in any meaningful way. As we think about these things, I want to leave you with three broad ideas. The first, it's not a marketplace of ideas. It's a constitution of knowledge. There's a difference. It's an important difference. And if we don't understand it, we can't defend ourselves. Point number two, you're being manipulated. Powerful and sophisticated people and interests are working to undermine the constitution of knowledge in ways that are quite powerful and need to be understood and protected against. Number three, they're not 10 feet tall. We are. Asterisk. We are if we play our cards right, if we do 
what we need to do to defend the constitution of knowledge, which isn't particularly easy. Not a marketplace of ideas. What do I mean by that? I think if you ask a typical American where truth comes from, the standard reply will be marketplace of ideas. Uh, it's an idea that goes back to the thinking of John Stuart Mill and was actually named only just over 100 years ago by uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes in his famous dissent in the case of Abrams versus US, where he says, the best test of truth is the power of the thought to get, accept, get itself accepted in the competition of the market. Now, I love the metaphor of the marketplace of ideas. I use it all the time. I am not against it, I am for it, but with the caveat that it is necessary but not sufficient. Now, what do I mean by that? Humans, cognition, is afflicted with multitudes of cognitive distortions and biases. I've listed a handful here. There are dozens and dozens that have been identified by modern psychology, and many have been understood since the time of the ancients. They're not particularly rational. They evolved for specific reasons, but they include optimism bias, thinking things will turn out better than they do, availability bias, we are more likely to believe things that we hear about more often, familiarity bias, kind of similar, fluency bias, we're more likely to believe, to perceive and believe things that we hear in a familiar accent compared to an unfamiliar accent. You can go on and on. These things do not counteract each other, they compound each other, so they don't just come out in the wash by themselves. And the granddaddy of them is confirmation bias, which you've all heard of, and its close cousins, my side bias, and motivated reasoning. We are likely to believe opinions that are more congenial to us, that elevate our status, our sense of ourselves, help us function socially, support our identity and our group or tribe. And not only are we more likely to believe those things, we're actually more likely to perceive those things. Experiments, for example, show the same play in sports to people of two different fan groups. And they will report perceiving different things on the field depending what their side thinks is the best outcome. To confirmation bias, we then have to add another compounder, conformity bias. This is a social bias. This is a group bias. This is what happens when you get people in a room together or in a tribe together. Um, we like to imagine that, that in a room full of people we'll have different viewpoints and we'll work it out and our differences will enlighten us. That's not what usually happens in an unstructured conversation. It's now been shown that in a group uh, people will tend to migrate toward the more extreme opinions in the room. Or this famous experiment conducted in 1951 by the social psychologist Solomon Ash. It's been reproduced in many different ways. Uh, with many different variants, one of which we'll hear more about. Raise your hand if you have seen this card. Is this familiar to you? Yeah, a lot of people have seen this. You take eight people, you put them in a room together, you show them this card or something like it, you tell them they're taking a vision test or something of that sort, and you ask them which line on the right matches most closely the line on the left. Raise your hand if you think it's A, no one, B, 
Come on, C. So everyone gets this right when they take this test as an individual, and well they should. It's designed to be blazingly obvious. So you take eight people in a room and you ask them this, but there's a twist. Seven of the people in the room are actors and they all give the same wrong answer, B. Person one says it's B. Person two, B, C. Uh, person three, B, all the way down. What does the eighth person, who is the actual experimental subject, say? In a third of trials, the experimental subject conforms with the group rather than picking the obviously right choice. And now this should be daunting to us because if each of us thinks we're too smart to fall for that, in repeated trials involving the same individual, only 25% of individuals reliably stick by their guns. The rest of us will on at least one occasion conform to the group. Sometimes conforming means saying what other people say, not believing it, in other words, kind of lying, but often it's thinking, well, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they see something I don't. Maybe it's an optical illusion or a trick. We become uncertain. It turns out we don't just see with our eyes, then going to our brain, then going to our group. We actually see first from the group to the brain and then to the eyes. Now, you can see where this begins to lead. You have confirmation bias. We want to be confirmed. We don't want to be confronted with, uh, with falsification. One study found that people would rather go to the dentist and have root canal than be confronted with political opinions they disagreed with. So we seek out groups that confirm our point of view. Those groups, in turn, further entrench us in our viewpoints. And we can spin off into spirals, epistemic alternative realities that drive us deep into rabbit holes where everyone in our tribe believes some version of the same thing. We can't speak to the other tribe, then our tribe schisms because someone goes off in a different direction, people follow them. There's no way to settle that. The society breaks apart. Often you get civil war. Uh, you get people settling disagreements of opinion by killing the other side. You get authoritarianism where authorities step in and say, this is what everyone will believe. This is the history of the first 200,000 years of human evolution. And this is what the marketplace of ideas looks like if that's all you do, if you don't structure it. So we need something more than what these two gentlemen, great as they are, came up with. You need to add another dead white male. Raise your hand if you recognize this person. Shout it out. Who is it? Oh, you guys are great. You'd be surprised how many people don't know that. This is the primary architect of the US Constitution, in my opinion, the greatest political genius who ever lived, including Aristotle, a man of profound political, uh, political insight. He understands that the Declaration of Independence, a set of general principles of freedom, are not enough. Very quickly, uh, the newly birthed republic descends into chaos as the states print money, default on their debt, uh, engage in navigation wars with each other, and the place begins to fall apart. Madison, not alone, but Madison especially understands you need one of these. You need a constitution. You need a set of rules and institutions that will challenge our, excuse me, channel our conflicts in pro-social ways so that the energy of our conflicts can be structured in a way that helps us resolve rather than perpetuate crucial social disputes. That's what the US Constitution does. It's a compromise forcing mechanism. And it's what the Constitution of Knowledge does. And here I want to emphasize 
The constitution of knowledge, unlike the marketplace of ideas, is not a metaphor, a simile, a literary device, an analogy. It's a real thing. And the important, most important part of my book, the part I recommend if you read nothing else, chapter three, which is about how the constitution of knowledge was developed and founded in chapter four, which goes into details. What are the institutions? What are the rules? What is this thing actually doing? This was built over the same time period as the US Constitution and then built out in the sciences uh, and in law and elsewhere and in institutions like this one. It's a whole set of rules that basically says if you want to make or assert that a claim is knowledge, is fact, rather than just an opinion, there's some things you need to do. Now, we don't have time here to go into what I think are the super fascinating rules of what the Constitution of Knowledge actually says. And it's not written down in one place, and it doesn't have a Supreme Court, but you can enumerate its rules, and it operates on principles that are very similar to the United States Constitution in terms of what it's doing socially. I'll tick these off, we won't go into them, but they both compel social cooperation. The only way you can make a law is by compromising, and the only way you can make knowledge is by persuading. You have to engage other people who are not like you, which leads to number two. They both use checks and balances so that no individual or viewpoint can run away with the process. Madison's great insight was the only force that can constrain political ambition is other political ambition. So you pit ambition against other ambition uh, in the sciences, in the law, in the other branches of the Constitution of Knowledge. You pit bias against bias. Both of these systems distribute authority, so no one is in a position to simply take charge and run the thing. They're both highly decentralized. Both of them are liberal systems in that they impose impersonal rules. It shouldn't, in principle, matter who you are or where you live. All that should matter is that you follow the rules. So, for example, anyone can vote if the system is functioning well, and anyone can perform an experiment, and in principle, it shouldn't matter who you are. The experiment should come out the same way. And finally, both of them rely on professionals and institutions to do a lot of this work. This is why we have a representative government, uh, elected officials, career civil servants, judges who are specially trained, and it's why you have scientists, lawyers, journalists who go through years of training. When you put these pieces in place, what you have is a global network of people and institutions using impersonal rules to hunt for each other's mistakes. They're trying to falsify each other. What I call the reality-based community, with apologies to Karl Rove. What are we talking about? So lots of things, but here are the big four. The first, the long pole in the tent. Science, research, academia, these are the people whose job every day is to come in and try to extend the boundaries of human knowledge. Second. Journalism, the world I'm from. Fact-seeking, fact-driven, bound when we do it right to finding new information, vetting it, testing it, correcting our errors if we're wrong, finding each other's errors. errors. Third, law, super important. The idea of a fact originates not in the scientists, but it predates them, it comes out of law because medieval courts of law needed facts in order to function. You couldn't just have anyone come in and say any old thing. So they develop mechanisms like adversarial processes to figure out what's actually true and to be constrained by that. If you don't think law is fact-based, uh, just ask Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump and Lynn Wood and the others who went to court 60 times with fake facts about the election and look what the courts did. 
And finally, four, government. As George Orwell pointed out, it is extremely important that governments be fact-based. Fact-based. If they're not, they can make up their own facts. They become capricious and tyrannical very quickly. Here is one of the institutions of the reality-based community. And of course, you're sitting here tonight. Some of you in this room are faculty, others are students, others will go on to careers in the reality-based community. Here's another one. This is the world I grew up in. I'm a, I'm a journalist by training and disposition. This is a newsroom. I started out in one of these, first at a newspaper in North Carolina, and then at a magazine. You can think of this as a hub, a node in the reality-based network that is pulling in hundreds of hypotheses in the form of tips, story ideas, every day, vetting those ideas through editors, through other reporters, figuring out which ones are worth pursuing, investing in those, sidelining or postponing the others. Then if they pan out, putting them out on the network where other places can pick them up and test them in turn. I liken this to a pumping and filtration network. A network where you've got multiple nodes that are pulling in ideas from other parts of the network, filtering out the stuff that's good, passing it on, filtering, I should say, in the stuff that's good and passing it on to the next node, filtering out the stuff that's not as good. These are maps, for example, schematics of uh, oil refining network or water network. Now, see very quickly, these are networks, right? And that's important to understand. People often talk about the old days of the gatekeepers who told us what was true and what was false. That was never the case. There is an infinity of paths through any one of these networks, through all of these nodes. But if you think about it, if the nodes are doing their job and there's, say, a 75% chance that they will pass through a strong hypothesis and only a 25% chance that they'll pass through a weak hypothesis, the weak hypothesis will be slowed down and ejected from the system pretty quickly. The strong hypothesis will tend to be propelled through the system. And if it's checked and vetted again and again over time and survives, it becomes knowledge. Wonderful thing about a network is that it is a network. All the other forms of creating human knowledge that we've come up with, priests, politburos, oracles, authoritarian societies, texts like Bibles, what have you, they don't scale. The more people and ideas you bring in, the more stress they come under, they crack apart, they schism, that's how you get war and oppression. A network like this scales infinitely. There are no boundaries to it. This is the number of peer-reviewed academic journals in the 20th century. I haven't seen these numbers update, but you can see it's a geometric rate of increase. I don't know any reason why this would have slowed down. These are the number of national nodes of centers, research centers in the field of mathematical logic. And what you can see here is over a period of 23 years, how many new countries, how many new nodes come in to this network, adding to the diversity uh, and depth of the ideas. This is the share of science and engineering articles that are internationally co-authored. This is only a 10-year interval, 2006 to 2016. Look at what happens in Britain there on the left, almost a 20 percentage point increase in internationally co-authored papers in only 10 years. And we see the same pattern in the United States and elsewhere. One of the most exciting things that's happening in the world of knowledge is the developing world. For instance, African countries, Middle Eastern countries are building the universities, the think tanks, the research centers, and coming in to the network, expanding it, bringing in more human talent, more points of view. Um, and this is also how we went from zero knowledge about COVID 
to decoding the genome in a matter of days and then designing a vaccine in a matter of days. Because this is a network, it is capable of pivoting thousands of minds and hundreds of institutions in a matter of hours or days to tackle new intellectual problems, drawing in resources and talent from all over the world. It's an extraordinary thing. There's nothing like it. That's why I say it is a species-transforming technology that takes us from small tribes with small quantities of traditional knowledge, much or most of which is wrong, to a knowledge-building network that is, you can think of it as a hive mind, a giant collective mind, linking minds and institutions all over the world and producing as its outcome this humanity's greatest product, bar none, objective knowledge. With apologies to relativists, subjectivists, and deconstructionists, objective knowledge is a real thing. It is tangible. I'm showing you a picture of it. If you drop it on your foot, it will hurt your toe. Um, it is independent in its existence of all human beings. We create it, but it then becomes independent of ourselves. If, if all human beings were to die off and aliens were to come to our planet and decode our libraries and databases, they could put that knowledge to work immediately. And we know this because in Star Trek season three original series, <laughs> Dr. McCoy has a fatal disease, the cure of which is found in the data banks of a robot spacecraft. You all knew that, right? <laughs> so I'm telling you this is real, but if you don't believe me, ask my husband Michael, who you see here getting vaccinated uh, only a bit over a year after the coronavirus was discovered. I mean, think about what this means. And now think about the fact that those same minds are pivoting to the vaccine, which works against every variant. No other system that has ever been invented can do this or anything like it. Can't even come close. That's why I argue that the constitution of knowledge, the disciplines and institutions that go with it, creates the structured conversation, the structured disagreement which transforms our species. But, point number two, ever since day one, the constitution of knowledge has had its enemies. You'll all recall the Catholic Church put Galileo under house arrest because his experimentation was leading him in directions that the Catholic Church did not approve of. Constitution of knowledge has always been subjected to pressure. There are always people who dislike either its outcomes or its process. It stands in the way, for example, of demagogues and of dogmas. I want to talk today about two of the specific challenges that we face, not the only ones, but the two that I think are causing the most severe challenges. Here's the first, you've all heard about it. Disinformation. Disinformation is the organization and manipulation of the media environment in order to deceive, uh, disorient, divide, or ultimately demoralize a target population. It's a form of fouling the epistemic environment so that people can no longer reliably distinguish what's true from what's false. Deliverables include things like cynicism. There's no real news sources anymore. I don't trust anything. Uh, deception. People just believe things that are false. We don't know the outcome of the 2020 election. A Senate candidate said that. Uh, it's not true. We do know the outcome of the 2020 election. Demoralization. I guess I would have to say that I'm completely confused as to who is lying and who is telling the truth. I just feel helpless. 
I just feel helpless. Demoralization is demobilization. It renders people in a state where they feel they're futile, that they don't know what's true or false, they don't know how to act anymore, and this opens the door to the opportunist, the demagogue, the dictator, who for their own reason wants to dominate or deceive that society. How is this done? The masters are Russians. Raise your hand if any of you have seen this, the clip that I'm about to show you. It's pretty famous now. Since 1983, a Soviet senior KGB defective. Our time together is precious, but it's worth taking a minute and 15 seconds of hearing what he has to say. So please listen. But in reality, the main emphasis of the KGB is not in the area of the intelligence at all. According to my uh, opinion and opinion of many respected of my colleagues, only about 15% of time, money, and manpower is spent on espionage as such. The other 85% is a slow process, which we call either ideological subversion or active measures of seizing the disaster in the language of, of the KGB or psychological warfare. What it basically means is to change the perception of reality of every American to such an extent that despite of the abundance of information, no one is able to come to sensible conclusions in the interest of defending themselves, their families, their community, and their country. Uh, exposure to true information does not matter anymore. A person who is demoralized is unable to assess true information. The facts tell nothing to him. Uh, even if I shower him with information, with, with authentic proof, with documents, with pictures. Demoralization, the facts mean nothing to them anymore. This should look a little bit familiar right about now. Now, these tactics are not new, um, but the Russians developed them to a fine art. Here's an example. This is 2018. You're looking at a picture of Sergei Skripal and his daughter. They were poisoned by Russian agents using a Cold War era nerve agent called Novichok. Uh, uh, they survived. The Russians had an explanation for what happened. In fact, they had a lot of explanations. They had dozens of explanations. Here are a few of them. Britain poisoned them. Ukraine poisoned them. It was an accident. It was a suicide and so forth and so on. Notice, no effort at consistency. Doesn't matter. What you want to do is spew so much stuff out there at such high volumes, as the Washington Post said, they fling up swarms of falsehoods, concocted theories, and red herrings intended not so much to persuade people as to bewilder them. The next part of what I'm about to say will strike some of you as partisan. I can't help it. I am probably the least partisan person you've ever met or right up there. I have admired and voted for many Republicans. My own politics are center right. Uh, what I'm about to tell you is just how I think the facts actually are, but you can make up your own mind. This is Stephen Bannon, an advisor to President Trump before the election and then for a year in the White House who famously said the real opposition is the media and the way to deal with them is to flood the zone with shit. Now that's a vulgar characterization, but it's a very precise definition of the tactic that is known in propaganda studies as the fire hose of falsehood. You put out so many lies, exaggerations, conspiracy theories, and half-truths, and you even throw in some truths just to get people even more confused. In such high volumes, 
over so many channels simultaneously that there's no way the media or the fact checkers can keep up. Every time they knock down one, there are five more. The public becomes bewildered and confused. Who does this? Well, according to PolitiFact, uh, these are the numbers as of July, late July 2016. The numbers look the same as of the end of October 2015. About a quarter of what Hillary Clinton said in the campaign was either uh, mostly or entirely false. That's too high. We don't like that. Should have been better, but it's perhaps not inconsistent with what we might expect from a politician at the height of a political campaign. The number for Donald Trump is 71%. In other words, if the man opened his mouth on a checkable fact, he was probably lying. This does not occur by accident. I mean, think about what you would have to do um, to achieve a, a record of falsehood like this. You'd have to work at it. And I believe that Donald Trump did work at it. I believe, and others believe, that he was using classic Soviet Russian-style fire hose of falsehood disinformation tactics against the United States. That is why his first actions as president literally were to publicly lie about the size of the crowd during his inauguration and to lie about whether it rained, both obviously checkable facts. The point here isn't to persuade people that it didn't rain and that his crowd was larger than Obama. It's to assert sovereignty over the truth and say what you think you know, what's in front of your eyes, doesn't matter anymore. In four years, Trump makes over 30,000 false or misleading claims. According to the Post fact checkers, this is about 20 a day. All politicians lie and exaggerate sometimes, but we've never seen anything like this. And please notice there what happens toward the end of the curve. You see that sudden spike? in the latter half of 2020? You all see that? Does anyone know what that is? Shout it out if you think. Right. In April and May of 2020, Trump launches his Stop the Steal campaign with a full-bore attack on mail-in voting. He says it's rife with fraud. People like me at Brookings scratch our heads, and we say, why is he doing that? Mail-in voting is something that's used by older voters, especially during a pandemic. They're his voters. Why would he be demobilizing them? We weren't thinking about it the right way. Trump was not aiming for election day. He was aiming for the day after the election. If he lost, which he knew might well happen, he would have in place a narrative, a tested narrative that had been out there for six months working its way through conservative media and elsewhere that would be ready to launch on November 4th. And launch it did. We saw the day after the election um, dozens and dozens of messages about election fraud, all of them based on nothing, often inconsistent with each other. We saw them promulgated through the courts, which were used as a disinformation channel. We saw them through conservative media, social media, Republican politicians, and last but not least, Trump himself, relentlessly from morning to night. This is how his Twitter feed looks if you look at um, the word election. Uh, this is how it looks. On another day, I just chose these at random, uh, it's an unceasing fire hose of falsehood. We have never seen this kind of campaign in American public life. This is the first time we have ever seen a wholesale deployment of Russian-style mass disinformation in American politics. Unfortunately, it will not be the last time. Now that we know that these tactics work, this won't be the last of them. How do we know they work? Well, majority of Republicans think that Donald Trump won the election, and a plurality, last time I checked, of independents think that we'll never know
who won the election in 2020. That's the outcome that they're looking for. It's not consistent with running a liberal democracy. It's not consistent with truth-based politics. Second, what's now known as canceling, a word that didn't exist when I started my book. Um, we saw that disinformation is manipulation of the media environment to deceive, distract, disorient, and ultimately demoralize. Canceling is manipulation of the social environment toward the same end. It's also a very sophisticated and well-known tactic. Here are some of its deliverables. Chilling, making people afraid to speak out. Uh, I often felt like the only dissenting opinion, a student says. On today's college campus, the risk of engaging in debate of controversial topics vastly outweigh the benefits. They distort reality. Certain points of view about touchy subjects never reach the surface, another student tells me. The result is an echo chamber. And there's that word again, demoralization. As a professor told me, I feel I am constantly tiptoeing through a minefield. I feel there is absolutely nothing I can do as a professor to stop this. It's like trying to hold back the ocean with the broom. That's the condition you want to induce, a sense of futility and helplessness. What can I do? I might as well give up. This is an old tactic. There's nothing new about it. John Stuart Mill noticed it in 1859. Before him, Alexis de Tocqueville came to America in 1835 and said the biggest threat to American freedom is not the government. It's what he called tyranny of the majority. The majority, he says, draws a formidable circle around thought within these limits. The writer is free, but woe to him if he tries to go on beyond them. Tocqueville goes on in a much longer quotation to identify a chillingly accurate view of cancel culture. You can lose your job, your friends, your professional reputation. All kinds of social things will happen if you disagree with other Americans. He's very worried about it, but notice that word majority, which I highlighted. Something Tocqueville didn't understand that we now do is you don't have to be a majority to use these tactics. In fact, they can be very effectively used by quite small but concentrated and focused minorities. This is the more in common poll, a very good poll, uh, exhaustive poll from 2018. Progressive activists, the real true believing left, that's 8% of the public, one in 12. Yet this is the group that's driving the conversation on Twitter, that is driving the conversation on many college campuses, that increasingly is driving the conversation in corporate HR departments and newsrooms. How do they do this, you might ask? It's not like most Americans or even many Americans agree with them. Well, mind games. Go back to the famous experiment from 1951. So remember, if you can manipulate the apparent consensus in a room or in a community, you can make people feel isolated. The more isolated they feel, the less willing they are to raise their voice in a dissenting opinion. The less they raise their voice, the more others who may share that opinion also fall silent. The result is what sociologists and psychologists call spirals of silence. The more people are silent, the more the real consensus is obscured. The more the real consensus is obscured, the more silence you have. You get a false consensus where it seems like what in fact only a small number of people believe is what everybody believes, or at least what a lot of people believe. And this will make people challenge even their own beliefs. I'm really not sure what's true anymore. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe these people are right. There's something wrong with me. Maybe I should be ashamed. This is a very sophisticated tactic of propaganda. 
has been used by dictatorships, including, for example, the Soviet Union, to manipulate opinion. No one knows what anyone else is thinking. They all think the regime is a joke. No one is saying it. So they all think they're the only one, and so forth. Turns out, unfortunately, that social media is beautifully designed to play this particular mind game because it's so easy to stigmatize, to mob, uh, to what's been called cancel those who disagree with you. And a small group, you know, say a few hundred or a few thousand people who come down on you overnight saying you're a shameful person who ought to be fired can wreck someone's life. This is a famous example from 2020. A democratic political analyst, actually a socialist named David Shore, tweeted out what you see on the left. That's an accurate description of an academic study. And in fact, was performed by a man of color. Uh, activists didn't like the substance of the study. Um, they immediately launched a campaign of hundreds of them attacking Shore as a racist. Uh, they went after his employer. As you can see here, they say, come get your boy. Uh, Shore does what people try to do. He apologized. I regret starting this conversation and will be much more careful moving forward. Doesn't help. Fired the next day. Another example from around the same time. This is a San Diego gas and electric employee who's driving down the street cracking his knuckles. Someone posts on Twitter that this is a white supremacist hand sign. Uh, people start going crazy about that. He is fired by San Diego gas and electric, even though the person who originally tweeted it said, uh, retracted the charge. This guy filed a, a lawsuit, by the way. There are many examples of this time. Some of them result in firings. Many of them just result in, why should I ever speak up again if I could risk something like this? And notice, you never know where the boundaries are here, right? They're not telling you that. And the boundaries change every day. And that's important because they don't want you to know where the safe zone is. They want to convert us into our own thought police so that out of fear of being canceled or mobbed, we'll stay away from anything that might be controversial and we'll overdefine those boundaries for ourselves. And that's how small groups, especially in enclosed communities like college campuses, can manipulate the apparent consensus to turn people into their own policemen, get into our heads. Uh, please don't tell me that this is just uh, the usual white, male, cisgender, privileged people who don't like criticism. Uh, it's not. It's something new, and it's different, and it's a different order of magnitude. What you see here is the change. And the percentage of Americans saying they're afraid to share their opinions in only three years, 2020 versus 2017, you see in every category except strong conservatives who have nowhere to go because they're already at the top of the scale, you see a 7 to 12 point increase in the number of Americans who say they are unwilling to share their opinions. And that's up to 42% among strong liberals. They feel canceled too. And guess what? They are ultimate targets of cancellation. Uh, they are the people who the extremists want to keep in line. Uh, it's not just conservatives. Are you worried about losing your job or missing out on job opportunities if your political opinions become known? It's about a third across the board, from very liberal to very conservative. This is not a healthy epistemic environment. This is a manipulated epistemic environment. Um, it's hard to compare this with earlier times, but here's an effort to do so. What we see is about three times the level of self-censorship than we saw in 1954, the height of the McCarthy era. And that's partly, I believe, because in the McCarthy era, you knew what it was safe not to say. If you stayed away from communism or sounding like a communist, you were probably fine. Not true anymore. You don't know where the boundaries are, as I just mentioned. 
Here's the campus. This is a trend. Uh, over the last few years, we see it goes from 54% of students saying that their climate stifles free expression up to 65% in 2021. This is not a healthy environment. Now, 65% is about the same as the national number, but of course, the university is supposed to be the place where people explore ideas, are intellectually adventurous. This is the place, above all, that should not be self-censoring. Yet just last week at a major national university, super elite university that you've all heard of, I heard one of the deans say, and a group of other deans, that there was so much self-censorship going on that even talking about self-censorship was self-censored. <laughs> what do we do? Where are we? How much hope should we have? They're not 10 feet tall, we are. I tend to move through this part of the talk pretty quickly, first, because we run out of time, and second, because it's good for questions, and third, because there's no easy answer here. People want to know what are the three things we can do, you know, revoke the Communications Decency Act, Section 230. It's not like that. We have been through epistemic crises before, the invention of the printing press, for example, uh, hyperpartisan fake news in the late 19th century. We got through them, but it was a multi-institutional, all of society response, where many people and institutions responded in different ways in their own sphere. What am I talking about? Just some examples. You're never going to get rid of the information warfare tactics that I talked about. They've always been there, they always will be. What you're looking to do is increase resilience and resistance against them. So, for example, immunize your mind. There's a new field called cognitive immunology. It takes lessons from uh, literal immunology how can we position people in communities, trusted voices like doctors, for example, and pastors to slow the spread of fake information, create nodes that slow it down? Often that's all you have to do. We have just seen one of the all-time most important demonstrations of what's called pre-bunking. You inoculate people against the fake news they're about to see by exposing them to it, saying, this is what you're going to hear, don't believe it. What am I talking about? Ukraine, Russia, the Biden administration, there's no precedent for the campaign of pre-bunking that they didn't seem to be extraordinarily effective. For the first time that I know of, the Russians were placed on their back foot. The stuff that they were planning to do, a lot of it they didn't do because we got there ahead of them. Make media smarter. This is already starting to happen. Media, people like me were wide open to disinformation in 2016. We'd never encountered it before. Now major media have professionals who cover disinformation when we put stuff in, we're much more careful to contextualize it. We can argue about Hunter Biden's laptop, but mainstream media was far more sophisticated in how to treat that. It had all the hallmarks of a classic Russian-style disinformation drop. So we're being more careful, we're giving readers more context, we're, the lead of the story is sometimes where did the information come from, not just repeating what it says. Um, there were much fewer successful efforts to penetrate our information ecosystem in 2020 than 2016. And it's not because the Russians, the Chinese, and the Iranians didn't try. We know they did. But it's because uh, we set sentinels and alarms. Uh, we now have professional organizations as well as amateur organizations, nonprofits, think tanks, academics around the world that are penetrating the disinformation networks, finding out what's coming up, tipping off the social media, uh, sometimes tipping off uh, state, uh, state law enforcement, uh, the, the national country law enforcement, where that's necessary, so we have a better idea of what's coming. Um, redesigning digital platforms. Now, this is really hard. We should talk about social media. We always do. Um, 
in the policy realm, there's maybe a lot that can be done, but I think the big change is in platform redesign. It's in how these platforms actually function. Right now, they transmit stuff. Typically, whether it's true or false, and falsehoods go much faster because they're much cheaper to invent, and you can tune them uh, to be things that people want to repeat. But we see all of these platforms trying lots of experiments to slow down the fake stuff and amplify the real stuff. Like on Twitter, if you try to tweet out a link without reading it, Twitter will interrupt you. They'll say, are you sure you want to do that? Now, these kinds of things may be small, but these kinds of incentives throughout the system are what the constitution of knowledge has developed over the period of the last three centuries to slow us down, make us think harder, force us to check and think. Think about requirements to check your citations before you go independent, all of that stuff. That can make a difference. Organizing against cancelers. Remember, what they're doing is creating a false consensus. Spirals of silence can break very quickly once those two people in the room who don't go along get up the courage or the social support to speak out. Other people in the room say, hey, yeah, wait a minute. The answer is not B, it's C. As the Soviet Union found out, these artificial environments can collapse on themselves very quickly. And you do that by organizing so that people don't feel isolated. And we're seeing that now. Groups around the country, like the Academic Freedom Alliance, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, counterweight.org, uh, and many others are starting to do that work. Build pro-social institutions. This is a big one. This is how we got out of the crisis in the past. Uh, we created norms and values and standards. Things like in the early 1920s, the American Society of Newspaper Editors is founded. The first thing it does is promulgate standards for journalists, like don't make stuff up. <laughs> Run a correction if you're wrong. Now, this seems obvious today, but someone had to think of it. And then at the same time, journalism schools were set up, which inculcate those norms and values. Prizes are set up, like the Pulitzers, which incentivize these things. And between 1900 and 1940, we go from the world of William Randolph Hearst to the world of Edward R. Murrow. Gradually, the business model, the audiences, and the standards all migrate together to a better epistemic environment. This is something we have going for us. People hate to be in a manipulated, falsified epistemic environment. It's like breathing horrible smog every day, not knowing what's true or what's false, not knowing who you can trust. If you offer them a way out, many of them, not all of them, but many of them will take it. They will migrate toward that system. And here's the one that surprises a lot of people. Not all the answers to this epistemic crisis are in the epistemic realm. Many are in the social realm, and the most important is to try to depolarize our society. Propaganda and polarization are two sides of the same coin. The reason that Vladimir Putin organized, used, used bots and trolls from St. Petersburg to organize conflicting demonstrations across the street from each other in Texas and Montana was to divide Americans. A divided society is weaker, and it's also more vulnerable to disinformation. The more divided we are, the more likely we are to believe that the other side is monstrous. Uh, so we're more vulnerable to propaganda, and the more propagandized we are, the more divided we become. This is the game that Vladimir Putin and others in the disinformation world, including, I would argue, the Stephen Bannons of the world, are playing. We can respond to that by finding ways to depolarize. I'm part of one such effort. It's called Braver Angels. It's a national grassroots depolarizing movement. It is a movement. It's volunteers. It's all 50 states. It's workshops and debates that bring blues and reds together, not to change each other's minds or even to find common ground, but these are structured conversations. Remember the importance always of structure to rediscover how to engage each other, because it turns out Americans are far less divided than we've been led to believe. 
studies find that we have twice a, a 2x overestimation of how extreme and different the other side is from ourselves. And just knowing that, knowing that they're not all monsters or crazy people, that in itself is depolarizing. This may be in some ways the most important thing of all. These are challenges, they are difficult, but I ask you all to remember the advantages that we have if we play our cards right, if we put ourselves to work. One is the one I mentioned, people hate living in an epistemically polluted environment. They will migrate to something else. Another is this, we have an extremely important friend. Only our system can produce knowledge. Only our system can do this. The alternative systems, the propagandists, the authoritarians, the cancelers can only destroy. They are nihilistic, they are parasitic, um, they are opportunistic, but they cannot create and engage millions of minds in countless institutions around the world to organize and discover new knowledge. Those of us who believe in and live according to the dictates of the constitution of knowledge, we are the only ones who can make and fulfill that promise. And it is important to have the confidence to remember that. What can we do as individuals? As I said, there's no one-size-fits-all solutions to this. But many of us work in institutions where we can find ways to stick up for the constitution of knowledge. Whether it's by, if we see a cancel attempt, going to that person and publicly defending them, say, I may disagree, but I oppose this terrible effort um, to deplatform this person. Whether it's by choosing, if we're a student, when confronting a view that we think is harmful or we may think is offensive, to dial our reaction down to annoyance instead of up to outrage. It means defending freedom of speech and freedom of thought and academic freedom and places like campus and all doing our part to do that. It means think twice before you retreat that funny joke that a lot of people will actually believe. It's not a game. Um, and be a reality ally. So you've, you've seen this before. I mentioned that there are variants on the Solomon Ash experiment. Um, here's one of them. You do the exact same thing, but you change one small parameter. Eight people in the room, seven people are actors. Six actors give the wrong answer. One actor gives the right answer. What happens to the experimental subject under those conditions? A single reality ally, just one person, who's willing to take your side in those controversial circumstances reduces conformity to five to 10%. Now remember, the people in this room are not your friends, your family, your coworker, your employer. They're not people you care about, they're total strangers. And even so, we will feel inclined to conform to them. But even so, just knowing that there are people in your circle who will support you and back you up if you do your best to speak out for the constitution of knowledge, this can make a surprising difference. Uh, we have a few minutes for conversation and thank you all very much for hearing me out. We're, we are tight on time, so okay. let's uh, all be concise, including me especially. I did come late, but I didn't hear you mention media literacy yes, as a I solution as well. I have a niece who's a librarian, and she has done it with um, classes of, say, third or fourth graders. 
and one of the videos they use is something that's on Facebook where it shows a duck rescuing a dog or something in a pond. They show it to the kids, they all think, 99% think it's real. And then they show the kids that the, somebody's underwater, scuba divers are underwater pushing the, the uh, animals around and making it look like um, that. And uh, that's one of the tools you use to yeah. get them in the beginning, get them early. Yeah, I, sh uh, I often do mention media literacy and uh, as well as critical thinking training. Uh, we're starting to see some of that in the United States, but that has been used to good effect in uh, Eastern European countries that are in the Russian orbit and have much more experience than we do dealing with disinformation and teach their middle schoolers and high schoolers routinely how to try to distinguish fake news from real news, tampered videos, and that sort of thing. Uh, and that's an important part of creating uh, mental immunity. Yes, so thank you very much for that comment. Yes, I, I just really enjoyed your remarks. But well, thank I'm you. Curious thank you about for coming. The, well, my pleasure. Uh, but as a 71-year-old, uh, I have my bias is on college. I'm desperately worried about college campuses, and I'm glad, thrilled you're here. I'm quite thrilled to hear to see the students. But how uh, I'm just how can for the young people? How can we make these institutions, or how how do you feel like this message is being? Uh, disseminated to students uh, to more and more campuses because in my mind if they're not learning it uh, we really it makes me de desperately concerned about the future for my grandchildren these people these students the 18 to 21 years old right now need to be hearing this message Do we desperately have, we have 18 to 22 year olds in the audience how many of you raise your hand if you think there's there's a problem with people people your age not being acculturated to the Constitution knowledge just curious Oh wow, that's a lot of hands. Okay, that's interesting. So one thing I would say, it's a big question, one thing I would say is ask those people how to reach them. Uh, I know that quoting John Stuart Mill does not do it. <laughs> um, one thing that we're doing Braver Angels is what we call Braver Angels Campus Debates. These are student-led structured, remember that word structure, it always has to be structured or it doesn't work. Structured, truth-seeking, parliamentary-style campus debates they create a way for students on opposite side of deliberately controversial questions to speak their mind and hear the other side speak, and they love it. A lot of students are feeling there's not enough oxygen in the room for those kinds of full and candid conversations. So that's doing it instead of preaching about it. Uh, I've got a whole list of stuff universities could do, and at the aforementioned famous university had a slide with 10 of them, so I won't get into them all. But for example, adopt the Chicago principles for free speech, and then publicize that. Tell your students when they come in as freshmen, that's what, what, you, what you need to do. Students come in, uh, many of them at 18, have no idea what the First Amendment says. They think hate speech is, is illegal in America. It's not. Uh, Purdue University is now in their sixth year of including an hour and a half module on, the, on free speech and the First Amendment since it's a public university. In their freshman orientation, they do it beautifully. It involves skits, students are involved. Um, that, that sets a climate in which students understand that it's unconstitutional to restrict speech in that environment. Uh, I think it's very important to reduce the powers of the outside authorities on campus. Uh, these are the student life officers and the bureaucrats which are investigating uh, what would be constitutionally protected speech. Uh, these have been weaponized by these small minorities to make life miserable, to get you investigated if you dissent. Um, that should not be going on. 
Um, those bureaucracies should simply stop investigating speech, especially by professors if it's not evidence-based um, evidence of professional misconduct. But a lot of it, I could go on. There's, there's, there's tons of this stuff. Um, but you know what? The real answer is that, that you guys who raised your hand, if you care about this culture, it's up to you now. Um, you're 71, I'm 62 in a few weeks. Our time is over. Every generation has to regenerate, rebuild, and defend the Constitution of Knowledge from scratch. I, I say this every chance I can. Um, the, um, the idea of free speech of the Constitution of Knowledge of creating this, this vast, disembodied, global network of minds to decide what's true and what's false, to trust it, to follow the huge numbers of rules and requirements to do that. Think of how much training it takes to become a scientist or a lawyer um, or even a journalist. That will never be instinctual. And the idea that speech and ideas which are not only offensive but bigoted, blasphemous, shocking, that this should not only be allowed but protected by the government, that is the most counterintuitive social idea of all time. A fact which is compensated for only by the fact that it is the single most uh, successful social idea of all time. But because all of this is so counterintuitive and involves so much acculturation, each and every one of us and their children and their children and their grandchildren will have to get up every morning and start from scratch explaining the principles of free speech and the Constitution of Knowledge. And you'll all have to reinvent how to do that. And the goal of this book is to motivate all of ourselves, but especially those of you in this room who are in your teens and 20s, to motivate all of us, but especially you, to do that work. Thank you all so much. <laughs>